0: Hello, and welcome back to the Tes News Podcast. I'm Joshua Morris. As everyone begins opening their advent calendars this week, we take a look at what some in education are hoping are behind those doors. And as always, funding is the top of the wish list. Senior editor Gwonyo Hallahan joins me a bit later to take a look at why SEND and CPD need to remain top of that list. But first, we have a guest on the podcast this week. Joining TEZ reporter Matilda Martin is Jack Wirth, school workforce lead at the National Foundation for Educational Research, as they break down one of our headline stories this week. After new DFE stats revealed the government missed 13 out of its 17 teacher trainee targets this year. Earlier today, Matilda and Jack took a deeper look at those stats.
1: Yesterday, DFE published its ITT census data which looks at the number of entrants onto courses and also compares it to targets the department has set earlier in the year. Experts have described the latest data as catastrophic and have called for radical action to be taken for the sector. The top lines from yesterday were the secondary targets for trainees were missed by 41% and at primary the targets were missed by 7%. This is also amid concerns over squeezing at both ends of the pipeline as teacher retention, which did abate during the pandemic, also begins to bite. And with me today to unpick some of that data and look forward a little, I have Jack Worth, a school workforce lead for the National Foundation for Educational Research. Hi, Jack.
2: Hello, Matilda.
1: Yeah, thanks for coming on. So we're going to talk through some of those key key figures and also look forward a little and, and speak a bit about how schools are already seeing the effects of, of years of, of under-recruitment. So Jack, what were your thoughts when you first saw yesterday's data and was it completely unexpected?
2: Um, I think it was quite uh, astonishing to see how bad the recruitment numbers were compared to uh, the targets. Um, I think We've been monitoring at NFER. We've been monitoring the applications data throughout the year, so it wasn't as much of a surprise to me or anyone that follows my Twitter feed in terms of how bad these numbers were. Um, but it's it's still quite surprising to see it on paper and kind of official numbers against the against the targets uh, that thirteen at the seventeen secondary subjects would be below target, and also primary, which also tends to uh, recruit quite well in a normal year. So it, it it's quite astonishingly bad uh, numbers in terms of recruitment, which will have real impacts for schools. And it's important to remember that this is uh, a recruitment issue in terms of not attracting enough teachers to meet those targets, but also very much a retention issue in terms of driving the reason why these targets are so high in the first place.
1: Definitely, definitely. And for anyone who's listening, you should definitely check out Jack's Twitter threads on ITT. They're very, very informative and very useful. Um, He's always straight on top of things there. I believe Sam Friedman has described you as the guru of ITT data. Um, So, yeah, absolutely. And I think think you're right. So during the pandemic, you know, we didn't really have many people leaving their jobs in in any sector, really. You know, especially the public sector was seen as quite a stable, um, stable career, I, I understand. So, yeah, we definitely had a lessening of that attrition, but now we're definitely starting to see it again. And I think, you know, that's at all parts of the career progression, not just, you know, as senior leaders, we've got early career teachers leaving. We've got middle leaders. So all parts of that career progression, which is certainly concerning. And I know that we're already starting to see the impact of that low recruitment combined with high attrition in schools. And, um, you know, leaders have been telling me throughout this year that they're struggling to fill positions, having to have non-specialist teachers teaching subjects, and also in some cases not being able to offer certain subjects. pupils because of, you know, an inability to to hire for that position. Um, One one leader I spoke to earlier this year told me that they are not able to offer religious education as a GCSE anymore because of the difficulty in in hiring for for that subject. Um, So it's, it's certainly an issue. Do you think there were other factors at play this year contributing to the shortages? I know that before the pandemic we had, you know, Issues with recruitment during the pandemic, you know, we very much had had very good recruitment. Are there things coming out the the side of this pandemic that we should be keeping an eye on?
2: So I think there's a number of economic factors that were driving a lot of this. So during the pandemic, as you said, we had a big increase in applications to, to teacher training. So uh, due to the, the lack of job opportunities elsewhere in the labour market, um, lots of people did decide to come into teaching teacher training uh, instead. Um, so that was a positive, positive, um, but and that was across all subjects. Um, yeah. But during the pandemic for 2021, the Department for Education, because of this big increase, cut back, scaled back some of the bursaries um, sure. to kind of counteract that and ensure that we didn't over-recruit in some subjects. Uh, so in a way, the 2022 is a bit of a consequence of coming out the other side and actually coming out the other side into a labour market that's like, really resurgent. So the number of vacancies in the wider economy were higher than they were before the pandemic because of this big surge in uh, demand for labor, uh, labor shortages, uh, which meant there were just loads of uh, opportunities at the time when the bursaries were still lower than they were before the pandemic because they'd been cut. Um, So I think there's some reasons for optimism in terms, a little bit of uh, grounds for optimism over the next couple of years, because um, the labor market is likely to, um, slacken a bit again, um, yeah. as we kind of move into, uh, a recession. Uh, so the, the job opportunities may be a bit, uh, more scarce, um, out there. And also, um, the bursaries have been increased, uh, across a number of subjects, uh, for next year. So English bursary has gone from zero to 15,000. So that ought to support uh english meeting its target because it usually meets its target but uh, this year uh is below target so there's a little bit of um optimism ahead but we shouldn't get carried away with that optimism because it's still uh we're, we're coming from a very uh difficult position this year in terms of not meeting the targets across a huge number of subjects including a long way behind in a lot of stem subjects so there remains a long way to go
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a number, a number of other things at play. I think, you know, providers are kind of telling me that they've got less career changes coming into to, you, you know, apply for for those that those training courses. I mean, if you're kind of a, you know, either a recent graduate or a career changer, you're coming out of the pandemic, you know, with more opportunity to work from home flexibly. And I think, you know, that's definitely something that we're going to start looking at in the future. You know how is the teaching profession and recruitment to the teaching profession going to be affected um, by this wider change? You know in in the labour market. Um, what about the other financial incentives that the DfE have got to play, such as the STEM Leveling Up Premium Payment? I know they announced more details of that earlier this year. I think in May. Um, do you think things like that are, are having an effect at all? Looking at yesterday's figures.
2: Um, so I think the the evidence that Sam Sims has put together in terms of looking at the retention payments that were in place before the pandemic, I think show pretty good evidence that they have been effective at increasing early career retention in those shortage subjects where they've been focused. So we welcome the reintroduction of them under the leveling up premium, but question also whether it's of at the large enough scale to really have an impact on maths physics chemistry computing which uh, a number of which are quite a lot below target and suffer with high uh, attrition rates as well so it, the fact that it's targeted at education investment areas and high fsm schools uh, I think is good in a way but in a in another way it would be great if it was more national focused um, so that it was supporting and boosting recruitment and retention right across the country
1: Definitely. I mean, you're right, some of those, some of those subjects, physics, computing, for instance, in particular, saw really, really low um, recruitment. I think physics missed, missed the target by 83% this year for ITT entrants. And, and overall, the percentage of STEM subject uh, teach trainee entrants was uh 54% of the DFE target. So certainly an issue. And I think subjects like physics and, and the other science subjects have been difficult for school leaders to, to fill those vacancies for, for a while now. Um, and they do talk about this vicious cycle whereby, you know, if we don't have more pupils taking having the opportunity to take those subjects, having access to them, we're going to end up with less potential recruits to teach in schools down the line. So I think it's it's definitely something that that leaders are concerned about now. In terms of the cost of living crisis, we've been doing a bit of digging this week and last week, and I know you've had a look at this, into the impact of the cost of living crisis on trainees this year and also potential applicants. I know you said it's kind of a little bit too early to kind of see those dropout rates, particularly reflecting the data. When are we going to to see the potential impact on, on the data? When we'll be able to see those numbers?
2: Yes, I think the cost of living is uh, a concern because whenever you switch into a different career, it's quite a big leap uh, and you've got to pay for teaching. You've got to pay tuition fees. uh, And so if you're not supported by a quite generous bursary, then it can be uh, financially uh, difficult to do, particularly at a time when uh, costs are rising, you know, might tempt some people, particularly career changes, to to stay in a role for that little bit longer if they have that um, opportunity. We looked for some evidence of uh, applicants accepting a place this year, but then maybe deciding not to register and uh, to uh, to not uh, turn up. We haven't found much evidence of that any more than any other year, which you know dropout happens, but it's not. It doesn't seem to be happening much this year. But there's still a risk that uh, you know the difficulties in terms of costs mean that uh, more trainees drop out of their training course this year, which is a concern. And we'll have to wait until the year after, the summer after next uh, to find out that from the the next round of uh, ITT data about uh, outcomes and QTS completion uh, and entry into schools. But uh, that's certainly um, a a concern on the table in terms of supporting these trainees through in what could quite be a difficult economic time.
1: Sure. And it's certainly difficult, you know, if we're not finding out that data for, for a while for us to kind of react to it in real time um and see the problem as it is and perhaps offer you know extra help for those trainees so we've spoken about bursaries a little bit and you said you know there are there is some hope that they could you know boost recruitment in some of those those subjects where we're seeing seeing issues do you think the bursary system as it is is effective or do you think there are some changes that need to be made
2: so i think we have good evidence that uh, bursaries increase uh, recruitment to teach training. So we saw through the pandemic some quite uh, large changes to the bursaries, and they mapped on pretty well to how the uh, applications would then change. So for every thousand pounds you change the bursary, you get an a, about a three percent increase. So you know if you knock ten k off the bursary, that's a thirty percent increase uh, or decrease in applicants, which is quite a huge uh, effect. So the fact that uh, the DFE uses them to increase uh, ITT recruitment, I think is, is a good thing and and shows uh, the evidence seems to suggest that it's very effective. Um, an unanswered question we have is that uh, how many of those additional uh, teachers attracted in by bursary increases are likely to uh, stay or to complete their course and enter teaching and enter teaching in the state sector. So that's an outstanding question in terms of that value for money picture. Um, we know that the early career payments are good at uh, retaining teachers who are already in the state sector to stay in the state sector, which is really good. Bursaries, we know that they're good at getting them in, into teacher training, but we don't know what happens then in terms of the next steps. So I think there's a bit of a fear about um, kind of bursary tourism, uh, but w- we just don't have the evidence either way about whether that's an, a, a, an unfounded fear uh, or not. Uh, in terms of the bursary regime as it is, I think it's it's been a major factor contributing to the reason why so many subjects are below their target this year because the bursaries are so low. And to some extent that's been addressed in this year's bursaries. So English is a lot higher, but biology is a lot higher to support overall science recruitment. Um, Even the shortage subjects like maths, physics, chemistry, uh, computing have all been uh, increased as well. So there's quite a few subjects that have. Um, But meanwhile, there's subjects that are below target that haven't had their uh, bursary increased. So religious education, you mentioned earlier, um, still has no bursary, uh, even though it's twenty five percent below its target this year. So, um, some 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 quite su- uh, surprising decisions there in terms of which subjects to support and uh, and which ones not with the bursary, given we know how effective they are at increasing trainees, uh, and we know how uh, far subjects are behind their targets this year.
1: Definitely, and I think a lot of people may say to me this year, why not why not addressing you know recruitment shortages in, in primary now. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, primary, as you said earlier, something that historically has been okay to, to recruit for, but now we're really very much seeing, you know, missing of that target. Um, and I think people are starting. there used to be financial help for, for primary trainees. And, and that has, has, has gone now. Maybe we're starting to see the effects of that, um, played out in, in the, in the data. Um, so Looking back to to yesterday, um, I know that you know you, you first saw the figures, as you said, they were they were very much a shock and they were astonishing, I think was the word that you used. Um, you also called for, for radical action from the DFE to, to tackle this. Um I know we've spoken about bursaries and retention payments. Is there anything else in terms of, of action that you think the DFE should be looking at doing in the immediate future?
2: Yeah, so I think uh i think pay needs looking at really so over the last decade the teachers pay has become less competitive to pay in the wider economy which has certainly contributed to uh to both recruitment and retention uh, issues um getting worse uh so so certainly pay needs looking at uh in in a in a better way really um we had an increase to the pay award Last year, uh, 5% plus 9% for for the starting salary, I think, which will have helped. But at the same time, average earnings were increasing by 5% and inflation was increasing by 10%. So we're not really making any, in spite of that very high pay award uh, in historic terms, you know, compared to other pay awards that have been happening over the last uh, decade, it's still not enough to make any headway against that lack of competitiveness, which has been growing over the last decade so you know a, a real radical strategy for looking at how do we increase recruitment and retention involves an increase uh, in pay right across the the pay scales um at a rate that's faster than average earnings because we need to make teaching more competitive compared to uh to other uh, other other jobs uh, in order to attract uh, the teachers and retain the teachers uh, that we need um but it's a very difficult fiscal situation in terms of finding the funding available to do that. But without it, then we face continued uh, under recruitment, uh, continued high levels of teachers leaving the profession, which is why we have such high targets. Uh, And that has real implications for schools and for pupils uh, in terms of uh, the implications it has for uh, school leaders finding it hard to recruit uh, and then needing to mitigate those shortages. By, for example, using non-specialist teachers, uh, unqualified teachers, uh, leaders doing more teaching, and all of this affects the quality of education in the school.
1: Definitely. And that's where it boils down to at the end of it, isn't it? You know, teachers are concerned that the quality of the education they can give pupils is, is starting, you know, to, to be affected. Um, and I think another problem, you know, you mentioned those pay rises last year. You know, they were un- underfunded. Um by the government, which has caused another set of issues that I know my my colleague Hannah Mason's been been covering um, in detail. And we've also got now um potential strike action happening in the in the new year. Um, you know, a number of, of the major education unions, NEU, NASWIT, NEHT, are currently balloting over strike and industrial action. Um, and Askel, I know are, are you know uh, they've got a consult consultant ballot going on at the moment. So that would be something else to kind of keep an eye on, um, I think, um, in, in terms of the sector. In terms of this this year's data, were there any surprises um in the data, anything you didn't expect to see, um, or any, any good things at all that you think might be be positive?
2: Uh there wasn't much good. Uh they... <laughs> History uh, teachers got mo- uh, more than their target, but then I think that's that's happened every year, as far as I can tell, back to the 1990s. So the, 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 not really a surprise. Um, I guess one surprise I saw was the number of trainees uh, of European nationality. Um, I think there's a kind of uh, narrative around Brexit uh, suggesting that the UK is a less favorable destination uh, for people from, uh, uh, kind of European nationalities. Uh, and we certainly saw a decrease in the number of, uh, teachers from Europe coming across and, uh, porting their QTS, uh, to be able to teach here. Uh, and we've seen decreases in the number of, EEA uh, uh, nationals signing up for teacher training, uh, but actually compared to last year, there was an increase in the number of uh, teachers from uh, European nationality backgrounds. So in terms of uh, drawing on a kind of global talent pool for teachers as well, that was, that, that was quite promising despite uh, the issues there might be in terms of visas and uh, the kind of barriers in place in terms of attracting uh, those teachers as well. Because it's worth remembering that uh, a lot of EEA nationals uh, come to, to do MFL uh, initial teacher training and MFL, we're two thirds below the target. So having that route to uh, attracting European nationals to come and do initial teacher training uh, is is vital uh, for supporting recruitment in that subject.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of that that increase, do you think that could have been affected at all by you know lack of movement because of COVID or uncertainty of, of moving abroad as well?
2: Yeah, I think there could be a range of factors there in terms of coming out of the pandemic and actually enabling a bit more movement. Um, yeah, so we, sh- we shouldn't get carried away with kind of thinking that the, the barriers have all disappeared or that it's not uh, challenging to make that transition. Um, uh, and so, yeah, there may be w- more work in terms of making that transition easier uh, to enable more teachers to, uh, to, to enter uh, teacher training uh, from a, if they're from a European and national background.
1: That's certainly something for, for us to keep an eye on here at Tes as well and definitely dig into a little bit, perhaps in the future. As you said, some of those barriers might might kind of n- not be there that people were, were, were saying could be. Thank you so much for, for coming on today, Jack. It's been a really, really interesting conversation and look forward to, to having you on again sometime soon, hopefully.
0: Thanks very much for having me. It's been great. That was reporter Matilda Martin of Tez and Jack Worth of the NFER. You can find Matilda's coverage of this story on our website, tez.com forward slash magazine, which breaks down these ITT stats and is supported by some lovely visualized data as well, which uh, really helps give you a good picture of the numbers on this one. So once teachers are in the profession, how do we continue to support their training on the job and hone their expertise? CPD of course. Joining me to take a look at CPD funding and more is Senior Editor Guanya Hallahan, Gronya, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, pleasure as always. How are you doing?
3: I'm good, thank you. How was your Friday?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's been good. Just recording the podcast as my usual Fridays go. <laughs> Listeners, you'll be happy to know gronya told me earlier that the podcast is the best part of her week. Uh, perhaps she said that in confidence, but I didn't detect any, <laughs> any sarcasm.
3: <laughs> it is. This is the best bit of the week. We get to talk about all the education stuff and... Have a chat with you. It's brilliant. Best best day.
0: Brilliant. Well, knowing that you're all energised for this, let's uh, let's start. So we've got a we've got a couple of articles we're going to take a look at today. I guess they tread fairly similar ground actually, as they both kind of read as pleas for more funding for specific areas of education. I guess I'd be surprised if we don't see more articles popping up along these lines for many different areas of education in the coming months, as funding is of course a hot topic at the moment in education, especially following the autumn statement. So the first area that we're going to take a look at is CPD. Uh, first of all, then, Gronil, what is the importance of CPD and how has it changed, I guess, in the last decade or so?
3: I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people that would say that CPD is the most important thing in education, really, isn't it? its that It's all about the teaching of teachers. So this piece, we've got Ian Borken, and he's the CEO of Tenex Schools Trust, and he's part of the Kent t- Teaching School Hub. So this is a man who really does know his stuff when it comes to teacher CPD. So what is CPD? Teacher Continual Professional Development. And um, I, I really like the way that Ian started off the piece by describing what CPD used to look like. And it's a picture I, I recognise from my early days in the <laughs> classroom, where it's the, um, how did he put it? The Long look forward day out of the classroom. Yep. I remember that used to get a magazine. You could tick out, tick which courses you wanted to go on and you'd think where to gave the best lunch. That was
0: always (laughs) really important
3: to get a day out. Um, Or surviving a twilight briefing. Yep. Did plenty of those too, where you just had to sign up for different sessions and you did the ones that fitted around what other meetings that you had had on rather than what you actually needed. Or good practice sharing on a randomly chosen topic after a long teaching day, with marking still to be done that evening. Yeah, <laughs> recognise that you sit in a room and have teachers say, "Well, they behave for me," again and again. and <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's that's what CPD used to look like. And he describes what he calls the teachers' CPD revolution. It was about a little over a decade ago, there was a large and growing body of research and evidence on what makes teaching effective and indeed less effective. And he said, you know, this really struck a chord with him and he saw it as an opportunity to give his teachers a different, a taste of different sorts of CPD that was more rooted in what they were doing in the classroom every day. How could they apply things like cognitive load theory, desirable difficulty, interleaving, um, you know, sequencing, thinking about the curriculum as a whole. Essentially, letting teachers be professionals and developing their craft, and we know that you know the quality of a teacher makes a huge difference to the education of the kids in the classroom. Mm. There's plenty of plenty of research that supports that and important. And people far more clever than me will, can make a really good case as to why this is important. And um, and Ian's saying the same here that no. it's really important for his teachers, and it's one of the most significant achievements of recent years to to um to take this and scale it up across the country. And yeah. This is why we have the teaching school hubs and we have the for example the, the early career teachers, not NQTs anymore they're now ECTs and they what we've done with with their framework and and making and formalizing that and making sure that it't doesn't, it doesn't matter where you are teaching what subject in what part of the country you're all getting the same training at the same time to make sure that we've got more of a more of a standardized approach to Two other early careers. What he says that just like all revolutions, this teacher CPD revolution has now it's got it's facing some risks and it could still be fragile.
0: Yeah, I think so. What you're what you're telling me basically is that inset day is not just a day off for teachers; it's very important. Yeah, I was particularly interested (laughs) in part of the article that that mentions that CPD also helps pupils who start disadvantaged to find it easier to. Catch up and keep up as well. I guess presumably because these teachers that have gone through CPD and they've honed their teaching craft, it helps them facilitate that catch up in perhaps ways that they they couldn't before.
3: Yeah, I mean it is it's not it's not a shock that better teachers will will deliver better teaching and can can close that disadvantage gap and will have better. It's I guess if you think about it, if we had like a computer game analogy, right? If you had like a main character like fighting his way through the computer game, if you give that character a choice of many different weapons in their arsenal. Mm-hmm. They've got the ability to choose what is the best weapon to use at that time.
0: Yes. Think yeah, about a teacher in a classroom.
3: Yeah. Probably shouldn't use a, a battle analogy here, but I'm going to go <laughs> with it. If they have a range of different approaches and techniques that they can draw upon, they'll do better.
0: Yeah,
3: And that's that's really, you know, they'll, they'll know how to adapt their teaching to suit the needs of the different students. Even if it's not the... Pedagogical approach, but just developing your subject knowledge is really important for teachers because then, if you're really secure in your subject knowledge, it makes the delivery of it so much easier and it's easier to scale up and scale down, make sure you're pitching it right for the class. And, you know, all of these things are are ever so important. And I think what Ian Borkham's arguing in this piece is that we can't let the threats to teach CPD, this revolution that's happened, there's, you know, there's pushback on it and, squeeze budgets you know it's, it's causing problems he thinks that we sh- we can't let the momentum drop and although it wouldn't be it wouldn't solve all of the problems if we did have a free at the point of access um early career teacher um NPQ training and these are the NPQs are the teacher qualifications that you can do um, it would remove a, an obstacle to access if we made it free for everybody that would that would improve things and it would be the best way to improve education That so that all pupils receive good quality teaching. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's an interesting one.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is there actually a fear that we could lose some of this valuable progress in CPD if it goes unfunded during this time where there is a lot of cost pressures?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And we've also got to think about the fact that we're hemorrhaging teachers and we're not getting the new teachers in. So Think about the, the expertise you have in a school. Some of the CPD and the quality of CPD that people receive is from the, your, your other teachers in, in the school itself. Mm-hmm. And so if they're leaving, then it's, a, it's a bigger problem, isn't it? Yeah. So we know that teacher turnover is a huge concern at the moment. And there's, there's all sorts of threats from many different sides for teacher CPD. So yeah, it's, a, it's definitely something that we can't, We can't afford to take our eye off the ball on this one.
0: No. Our second article is an area which did receive a new boost of funding from the DfE, which is SEND. They got an additional £21 million to train more than 400 educational psychologists from 2024. I guess that really sounds good, but but is it actually enough, Grania?
3: I mean, it sounds almost like villainous good. £21 million! And we're going to have 400 educational psychologists! Um yes, this this piece is written by Tom Campbell and he's the interim chief at EACT. Um, the the trust, the uh, Multi Academy Trust. Um he says this is almost like a hooray, boo situation. So, hooray, we've got this money. Boo is probably not gonna fix it though. So why is it not gonna fix it? Why is it not just simply a matter of getting some more educational psychologists and or ed psychs as they're commonly referred to in schools, like by all the cool kids. Um he makes the point that we desperately need these educational psychologists like the situation is dire because we've had a huge rise in the number of children who require um, additional uh, special educational needs and who've got special educational needs and disabilities and who require extra support in schools and he says it's gone up by as much as 40 or 50% since the arrival of COVID like let's just pause you thought that figure that figure of extra money was impressive like that figure is terrifying because think about the actual day-to-day impact that has on schools in the classrooms. That's, that's huge. And it's not just the fact that there's more children who have additional needs. It's also the broad range of needs that these children present. So it could be disability, it could be cognitive development, it could be adverse childhood experiences, it could be deprivation, neglect, attachment, anxiety, social, emotional traumas. And even if we... Have trained schools to identify and meet those needs. This has exposed a huge lack of capacity in the system, right? Because we don't, we're not able to follow up that initial assessment of need because we've got no Ed Sykes to send them to. So, um, why is just giving them more money? If we have more money and we've got more Ed Sykes, hurrah, this will solve it. But no. And um, Tom Campbell explains why. Um, because at the moment, only 17% of applicants for ed psych programs get onto the program. 17%. 17 one
0: 17 17,
3: 17, wow. Um And, you know, there'd be various different reasons for that. So that's a problem. Also, he describes it as a rusty pipeline. No one <laughs> wants a rusty pipeline. Um, <laughs> so once you've got them trained mm. and they're working as a psychologist, like brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Oh no, but they leave. So they go in yep. to do private work instead because they can achieve a far higher salary. He says that they can earn three times the salary in the private sector wow. than if they work for local authorities. Ouch! Um, so we've got this problem, and he also says that the fact that they made it um, made it harder to to become an educational psychologist. So. In 2006, the level of training to become an ed psych increased from a one-year's master's degree to a three-year doctorate.
0: Yeah.
3: Right. So that means that we don't have many people who get onto the, the, onto the programs. When they do get on, they leave. And then if we try and get them onto the program, it takes longer than it did in 2006. Yeah. So. He describes it as well overdue to um, review the roles of the SEND code of practice to look again at who's best to advocate for, for children, because if we're relying on educational psychologists to be able to progress the, the paperwork and to you know, put the, get the funding in place for the kids who've identified these needs for, you know, this is, this is going to be a, a big
0: problem. Yeah, there's just not enough of them.
3: No, there's not enough of them. And there are other things that we could do. So like the 21 million is very welcome, but... This is just the tip of the iceberg because we've also got the problem of once the once we've got the educational psychologists so for them to do the work they need to do, they've got lots of other external bodies that they work with so you've got cams speech and language therapists, other therapeutic interventions, and there's not enough in those services either. so even if we get all the educational psychologists in place, they can't then refer to the services that will need to be referred to because they're underfunded too. So, yeah, he describes it as a drop in the ocean.
0: Yeah, it feels, um, I mean, that analogy of the pipeline feels very familiar when we're talking about teachers as well, doesn't it? These kind of, this pipeline to get teachers into the profession and retain them, and it feels like it's got these leaks at every every stage. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's definitely a problem that that needs to be addressed in lots of different ways. I think the main thing that, you know, Tom Campbell's advocating for in this is that, you know, we should, pre- we p- should put more weight on the assessments that Senko's who are working in schools at the moment to help accelerate the time between diagnosis of need and access to professional services. That, you know, we're not going to fix the problem about educational psychologists anytime soon, even with this new funding, because of the amount of time it takes to train to do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the senkos who we've got, they're there, they're there, they know what they're doing, they've identified mm-hmm. the need, let's put more weight on their assessments so that we can speed up the most important thing, which is all these children need to have the extra support.
0: Yeah, help facilitate the ones that are there to do their job better as well. Yeah.
3: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: I, I've got a question to finish on for, for both articles. Is it realistic to expect this level of funding and support that they sorely need for both of these areas, when I assume there are many areas of education that are going to be clamouring for more cash at the moment, and we're clearly not in an ideal economic situation?
3: You know, it's a really good question. I think when you consider the difference that it makes when you've got the needs of all children in the classroom being met so that they're able to access education, other things will come easier. So, like, What other things are really important in schools that we should be addressing? Well, think about the disadvantage gap. That's really important, making sure that children from disadvantaged backgrounds are achieving as well as their advantaged counterparts. If we don't address the needs of children's special educational needs, then you've got a teacher who hasn't got the support they need for those children. So therefore, their teaching time isn't going to be as effective. You know, there, there's going to be children in the classroom who can't access what they need to access because things aren't in place. Do you know what I mean? So
0: yes, it builds. It builds from this kind of foundation. Yeah, here.
3: yeah. And I and I think if we're not meeting the needs of our special of children who require special educational needs, we're really not doing anything right. And teacher CPD. Well, I think that's just an absolute no brainer. We know it also keeps teachers in teaching. That continuous. Si- professional development helps teachers stay in the job which is something we desperately need to address as well so yeah I think we can't cut back on CPD we can't cut back on SEND Um, but please don't ask me what we should cut back on (laughs) do you know what I know Moxeads I would love I would love (laughs) to ban mocksteads, and then that would that would save us all the money we would possibly need Um, disclaimer I'm not a funding expert (laughs)
0: Yeah, these two areas definitely sound like two kind of key foundational areas for supporting everything else that that teachers will do in their day-to-day.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thank you, as always, Gronia, for joining me today on the podcast. As always, you can find all of these articles we've discussed today on our website, tez.com forward slash magazine. You can also go there and sign up for our newsletter and you can subscribe for just £3 for the next three months, which is a great deal, as we mentioned last week as well.
3: Yes, read the articles, attach them to emails and send them to all your friends and discuss them. Have fun nights out reading our pieces.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Gronia.
3: Thank you.